May Christ be truly preached. May Christ be truly heard. May your people, O Lord, see Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today uh, we are in the section of Acts, we've been progressing along, in which Paul is having his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And this is going to be a lengthy uh, scripture to have to deal with. And I hope to begin to talk about what Paul has done in Ephesus during his stay, what Paul says will happen to him after he leaves Ephesus, and what will happen to the Ephesian Christians after he leaves Ephesus. And then I'm going to try to apply that to we here at Christ Church. This is the culmination of Paul's ministry to the church in Ephesus. The entire address is not in your service sheets. We had to cut it off. It was 21 verses long. So I ask you, if you would, to turn to page uh, 1079, 1079 in your Bibles, or begin at Acts 20, verse 17. But I'm going to cover the entire address because it's all very important and apropos. That would be page 1079, beginning with verse 17 of the 20th chapter. The key verse in this whole section is found in verse 24, where Paul writes, or he says to the Ephesian elders as they're gathered there, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This section begins in verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Paul had been traveling throughout Asia Minor and into Greece. He's now passing by Ephesus. He wants to get to Jerusalem before the feast of the Passover. And so he sends word. He says, let the elders, let the leaders in the Ephesian church come down to Miletus, which was a port near to Ephesus, and meet with me there because I want to speak with them. I want to give them some final instructions. So Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And he, and he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. That's the beginning of this address, verses 17 and 18. And at the end of the address, it ends like this in verses 36 through 38. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now you would think that having these two verses where he's calling the Ephesian elders, the leaders, come down to Miletus. I want to speak to you. I want to give you some final instructions. And he begins that instruction, that address, by saying, you know how I've lived my entire time with you. He had been three years in Ephesus, teaching both to the Jews in the synagogue and mostly to pagans in a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. Three years he'd been there teaching. And so he starts off that way, and he ends by saying, you're never going to see me again. And they begin to weep, he wept, and they all embraced one another. 
What you would think is that between the beginning and the end of this address, there would be much warm recollections, many warm and uh, friendly feelings about the, the glory of, the, of Christian community and fellowship, but that's not what you get at all. There's something completely different. But as many of you know, I'm a student of history. I love history. Some of you find it boring. I find it fascinating. It's, for me, it's the story of people's lives throughout the ages. And let me just give you some chronology here on the different times that Paul was passing through, just to give you a sense. Approximately, these are very approximate, 32 AD, Jesus' resurrection in the day of Pentecost. The church began to spread. 34 AD, two years later, after Pentecost, Paul has his Damascus Road experience where he's struck down and he is uh, told by the voice that he should quit, quit kicking against Christ and what Christ wants to do in his life. Then, 51 to 53, Paul has his second missionary journey. He's already had one journey. And between 51 and 53 AD, he has a second missionary journey. And that's important to the Ephesians because at that time, as he's passing by Ephesus, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila, who are two disciples that, that Paul has mentored, and they're going to be teaching the Ephesians about the faith. And then in 54 to 58, Paul has his third missionary journey, and he spends the bulk of that time in Ephesus. Then... He goes on in that 54 to 57. He's a teacher, preacher, evangelist in residence in Ephesus. He's initially teaching in the synagogue there. The Jews don't care what he has to say. So he leaves. He goes down to a hall, a hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. It's a pagan uh, lecture hall, and he spends three years there talking nonstop. In 58 AD, he addresses the Ephesian elders. He stops at Miletus and has this address, which we have in Acts 20. And then in, by about 62, he writes the book of Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. And then by 66, he is put to death by order of the emperor Nero, as Nero tries to blame Christians for the great fire of Rome. So that's what's happening. But as you can see, he's had a great relationship with the Ephesians. In his second missionary journey, he dropped off Priscilla and Aquila to teach them and to evangelize in Ephesus. Then he comes back. He spends three years in Ephesus. So there's a very tight relationship between he and the Christians in Ephesus. But this whole, then, this whole uh, address breaks down into three parts. And I've shared with that with you. What Paul did for the church, he begins with that. What will happen to Paul when he leaves Ephesus after, as he sails on to Jerusalem? And what will happen to the church? Well, the first thing that Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he tells them what he's done for the church. And first and foremost, Paul preached and taught night and day for three years. We know that John Wesley, the founder of, of, of uh, the Methodist movement, he was a good Anglican priest for his whole life. He never left that, but nonetheless, his followers created Methodism. We know that, uh, that Wesley preached 15 sermons a week. 40,000 sermons in a lifetime. And we begin to wonder what's happened to the whole art of good preaching. And because of that preaching, the world, England was dramatically changed. In turn, America was changed. It brought on the Great Awakening and it changed the whole landscape of England and America for centuries to come. And I have no doubt that Paul preached just as many sermons and did just as many teaching. In fact, this teaching was quite extensive. 
It wasn't simple evangelistic uh, crusades. Instead, he got deeply into the Word of God and exposited it at great length. Just before this episode in Acts 20, we read that he stopped at Troas on his way to Ephesus or on his way to Miletus in, in his time with the elders. He stopped at a place called Troas, and it says Paul prolonged his speech until midnight, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting in the window. You remember that story. It was a late night teaching, and uh, it went on for hours. And Paul was supposed to finish at midnight, but he kept teaching more and more. And as he taught, it says in the scripture that there were lots of lights and candles that were burning. It probably got quite warm in that room. And it says, and the young man Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked longer and longer. And you know what happened to Eutychus? Eutychus fell asleep and fell out the window. And everybody thought he was dead, but Paul rushed down, laid hands on him, and he was healed and revived. But this gives you some idea of the amount of teaching and preaching that not only Christians were willing to tolerate in the first century, but Christians were willing to tolerate uh, during the 18th century, during Wesley's great time of preaching and even beyond. He said, I did not hesitate to proclaim the whole will, and we also, that's also tra translated the whole counsel of God, the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you uh, the inheritance. So that's what Paul is preaching, the preaching of the word of grace, God's grace, unmerited favor for sinners. The impossibility of man became the absolute possibility of God. This was God's grace from salvation through sanctification. God's grace covered it all, and he preached the word of grace, the whole counsel of God. Paul's message was the same. He was the same as John the Baptist and Paul, he, what Jesus preached and uh, Peter preached, and that message was repent and believe. This is the response that God is looking for from those he has elected and called. God is looking for you to repent and believe. It's quite simple. What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe. And he said they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul did was not only to preach, but he was also persecuted and suffered, and he worked very hard while he was at, at Ephesus. He says, with great humility and with tears, severe testings and plots, so his time there, he, was in, he, was, he faced the great riot in Ephesus, where they rioted over his teaching, because he was teaching that the pagan gods were not gods. And as a result, the silversmiths, the guild of silversmiths, who made their living by making statues of the head deity of Ephesus, which was Diana, also known as Artemis, they saw them losing their revenues because Paul was saying, hey, ignore these gods. They're no gods. They're nothing. They're nothing but metal. They're metal that men have made. Ignore those and turn to the true God. And Demetrius the silversmith said, wait a second. I'm losing my revenue. We've got to throw these guys out of town. So he went through great humility, and he had tears, severe testings and plots. He said, not only that, but my hands supplied my needs and those of my companions. So he did his own work. He didn't say, hey, I'm coming to do your evangelistic crusade, but I'm telling you what I'm going to need. I'm going to need a place to stay, and I'm going to need a stipend, and, you know, I want to only have Perrier water in my uh, motel room. 
I mean, make all these requirements. He said, no, I did it. I took care of it. And not only those, you know those folks that came with me. I took care of their expenses. Don't you remember that? And not only that, but I made enough money so that I was able to help the weak. I was able to give philanthropically, charitably, to those who had need in your own community. Because you remember the words of our Lord Jesus. He said, how it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he preached. He suffered. He worked hard. He gave to charity. And then he finally says, therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. That's an odd thing for him to say at the end of this, but I think it ties in with that prophecy in Ezekiel 33rd chapter, 6th through the 7th verse, where Ezekiel says, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, God is saying this to Ezekiel, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. So Paul saw himself as a watchman. He warned the Ephesians. He told them they needed to repent and believe. He got deeply into the word of God. He read, Mark, learned, and inwardly digested that word. And he explained it to them. And so he says, I am innocent. I've done everything I need to do. If you don't understand the message, God has not given you the grace to understand that message. So now, what will happen to Paul? He's told them what he's going to do, but what will happen to him? He tells them, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know, the only thing I know, is that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. How different is this word than what we often hear? You know, accept Christ, have your sins forgiven, have a home in heaven, have joy, peace, gladness. Things will work out. God will solve all your problems. There's a great hymn in the Anglican hymnal It talks about the apostles that said, they cast their nets in Galilee, just off the hills of Brown. Such happy, simple folk, until the Lord came down. Such happy, simple folk, before they ever knew the peace of God, which filled their hearts brimful and broke them too. Young young John who trimmed the flapping sails, young John who trimmed the flapping sails, homeless on Patmos died. Peter, who hauled the teeming net, head down, was crucified. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Yet brothers, pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. That's what he was facing. He says, I don't know the details, but I know this is going to happen to me because the Holy Spirit had told me. But you know, this was no different than what the Holy Spirit told him at his conversion. If you will remember, when Paul was struck off his his horse on the road to Damascus and struck blind, the Lord gave Ananias, a a disciple, the task of coming to Paul and ministering to him. And this is what the Holy Spirit said to Ananias. He said, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for me. 
I will show Paul how much he must suffer for me. I have no doubt that Ananias said, Paul, God bless you, God heal you, give you back your sight. And by the way, Paul, I have one more thing from the word. The Lord's given me one more word for you. You will suffer much for me. The Lord gave the word to Mary. A sword will pierce your heart at the birth of her son. Paul understood that, and he understood that suffering was absolutely critical and essential for his ministry and for our Christian growth. He said this to his disciple, Timothy. He said in Timothy 3, 12, and 13, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Do you? Okay. Will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And not only will you be persecuted, but you will see deceivers prosper. Because he says, while evil people and imposters, deceivers, will go from bad to worse, deceiving, deceiving and being deceived. He went on to say, and he expanded this by saying in 2 Corinthians 4th chapter, we are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus Christ may also be revealed. See, Paul understood. He understood the whole idea of the union with Christ. It wasn't that Christ had saved him and died for him, and shed his blood for him. But when that happened, when God regenerated, regenerated Paul, when he gave him a new birth, God placed Paul into Christ. So therefore, everything that Christ experienced, his persecutions, his beatings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting on the right hand of God the Father, Paul was going to experience the same thing. And by the way, every one of you who is born again will have that same thing. Everything that Christ has, everything that Christ experienced is yours. And when you were born again, God gave that to you. So he says, we are always carrying in our body the death of Christ because he had that union with Christ. In fact, he went on to say, and this is my life verse for Philippians 3rd chapter 10th verse. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of, his suffer, of sharing in his suffering. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. The whole verse goes like this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. Think about that. I want to know Christ. Do you want to know Christ? Yes, I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. Oh, that's great. The power of his resurrection. That's what I want. I want power in my life. But what does it say? What does Paul say? When I am weak, then I am strong. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Those two go right together, and they can't be avoided. So that was what was going to happen to Paul. Now what will happen with the church? The church will be under attack. 
He says, I know when I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Paul is saying, this is what's going to happen to me. I am going to more suffering. Ultimately, I'm going to Rome, and I'll be martyred there. I'll be crucified and burned alive or crushed or executed, crucified, uh, beheaded, like the other Christians in Rome will do in 66, what will happen to them as well. But this is what's going to happen to you, Ephesian Christians. Savage wolves are going to come in and not spare the flock. People will attack the church from the outside. Now, we see that happening right today. We know in certain countries, there's certain things preachers cannot say in the pulpit unless they will be arrested and taken away. It's against the law in Sweden to speak against homosexual behavior. We already know an Assembly of God pastor who's been imprisoned there. That time may come with us. But there's also attacks from inside the church. From your own number, men will distort the truth. From our own number, men will distort the truth. Now, before I preach this sermon, I met with Pastor Jamie Kendrew, and we went over this passage. And I called him back up and I said, Jamie, I've got a real problem. I can tell you what distorting the truth meant in the first century A.D., and it's not going to mean very much to you all because it talks about genealogies and myths and, and Jewish uh, ceremonial law, all that. I said, I've got to talk to the people about distorting the truth in the evangelical church today. So Jamie, who does do this for a living, I don't. In fact, that's Pastor Wade said, we're always nervous to let you in the pulpit because we don't pay your salary. We can't control what you're going to say. So he and I nailed down about seven things in the evangelical church today that would be a distortion of the truth. And I want to talk about those. And if it rings true, then that's tremendous. So these are the things I would point out. These are the things that those with inside the church will actually distort the gospel of grace. The first one is a personality focus on the pastor. Remember in 1 Corinthians, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas? That was all personality cult. Oh, we love that pastor. I once uh, was uh, here at church after church. I saw a couple. I like to go up and meet people I haven't seen. I said, um, I've never seen you here before. Oh, yes, we only come when John is preaching. You know, if you're here today and you think that, shame on you. Because you know the Word of God the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. John is not living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So there's those who follow personality. It's the same thing in Brave Men, the Friday morning uh, uh, Bible study with Bruce Bickle. When Bruce is not there, the number drops. Shame on those men. Okay, do you like certain preachers more than others? Yes. Do you find some more attractive? Yes. Are some better expositors? Yes. But it's all the Word of God, as long as it's not being distorted. So that's the first distortion of the gospel of grace. Oh, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to go to a church that I like the pastor. The second thing would be bad music. And I've already talked to Keith about this, so he's not <laughs> jumping out of his skin. 
I love that passage when Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. When you sing, do not heap up empty phrases. You see, bad music is music, church music, that has bad theology. And we have too much bad theology in our music. Now, I'm not going to mention any of them because some of you will come up after and say, wait a minute, that's my favorite hymn. And I know that often, you know, we love the tune. The tunes are great without even thinking about what is being sung about. But I'm telling you, there have been times throughout church history where there have been great sound doctrine hymns. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. That's a pretty powerful hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That's a pretty powerful hymn with sound theology. How great thou art, how great thou art. That's pretty sound theology, wouldn't you say? Listen to the tune. I, I'm not very fond of the tune of Rock of Ages, but I've listened to it in an English tune that I like much better. And for the first time, I listened to that words of that. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Oh, gosh, Lord, in your, in your anger, in your wrath toward my sin and the sin of the world, hide me, hide me in the cleft of your rock. That's pretty solid theology. Or, of course, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch like me. I'm just not mistaken. I'm just not doing some things that are inappropriate. I am a wretch. And John Milton had no problem saying those things because he believed that they were sound doctrine. I also, you know, there's another hymn that we sing that I like. It's a little more contemporary Remember how great is our God. Sing to me how great is your God. Listen to these words. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the world rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide. He trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great, how great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God, and all will see how great how great is our God. Is that solid? Could you not be singing that and praise God in your heart? But bad music is music that trivializes God. It makes God our buddy. I hate love songs to Jesus. I just don't care for them at all. I like talking about God in all his majesty, in his glory. So personality focus is a distortion. Bad music is a, fo- is a distortion. And here's another distortion. Man-centered salvation and sanctification. Many of us believe we're saved by grace, God's action. But then we begin to live as if we're sanctified by our efforts. God gave me a great start, but it's up to me to get me across the finish line. If you believe that, you're in error. Look what it says in Hebrews. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus not only founded my faith, he's going to perfect it to the end. If I don't have that confidence, I have no confidence at all. 
because it's not within Ted Wood to make, get myself across the finish line. And any teaching of preaching that puts man, his problems, his wants, his responsibilities at the center of the gospel is not good news. I often have people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you've got to be more, you've got to be more committed. You've got to be more, you've got to be more dedicated. You've got to be more surrendered. And I said, okay, great. How are you doing? How are you doing? With all your efforts, how are you doing? If you start here at regeneration and the standard of Jesus Christ is here, how far have you gotten? Or how far do you expect to get? If Jesus Christ himself, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by uniting my life with his life, by putting me in union with him, if he doesn't take me from the beginning of my regeneration all the way into glory, then I have no hope. He's got to be the one that does that. So what's between the beginning of this address and the end of this address? What is, is what, what he focuses on is suffering, preaching, and enduring. So what does Paul have to say to the Ephesian elders that he can say to us today? The first thing he wants to say is embrace the fellowship of his suffering. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He also says, for Christ's sake, in Philippians, he said, for Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's, he's come to the place in his walk with the Lord that it all doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because I've been crucified with Christ. That's what he says. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's made a tro- total transformation of understanding that it's not about him. It's all about Christ and what he's doing and his union with him. So that's the first thing that we need to embrace, you and I need to embrace, is the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. If you are suffering, you need to embrace it. God is not taken by surprise. He's not saying, oh my gosh, you've got cancer. I could have never guessed that was going to happen. Oh, you've just lost your job. Oh, wow, that's a surprise. God knows it all, and everything you go through is under his sovereign grace. And he's directing it so that you might share in Christ's suffering. The second thing is preach the word of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He talks about the whole counsel of God's word, the width and the depth and the breadth, the whole business. In 2 Timothy, he says, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. For the time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. The only defense that we will have as the world comes crowding in, and certainly it will, it certainly will come crowding in on us, and it will restrict us, and it might even charge us with crimes. The only defense we have is the preaching of the gospel of grace. And we must do that night and day, all the time. The whole counsel of God's word. That's the only weapon we have. The only weapon is the sword of the spirit against what the world throws at us. And what is that gospel of grace? 
As we all know it, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I've already talked about this. By grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. By grace, that's God's gift. Through faith, that's your experience of God's grace. Everything in the Christian life is about by grace, through faith, from beginning to end. So that's the word we need to preach. So we need to share in the fellowship of suffering. And secondly, we need to preach the word of his grace. And finally, we must endure to the end. My only aim, Paul says in verse 24, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me. In 2 Timothy, he says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Remember, it's not enough to simply raise your hand when, Jesus, when the preacher calls you to give your life to Christ. That is simply the starting gun of the race. It will not guarantee you a place in heaven unless you endure to the end. Jesus says in three places in the gospel, he who endures to the end will be saved. He does not say he who accepts Christ will be saved. It doesn't say he who raises his hand at an altar call will be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now, how is this possible to endure to the end? How is it possible for you and I to endure even to the end? To keep preaching and teaching. The persecutions, the sufferings, the temptations we face are so great, they're beyond me. And it's not, uh, the answer to that question is not, what am I going to do about it? But what did Jesus do and what is he doing? This is what we do. How do we endure to the end? Looking to Jesus. In Hebrews it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, look it. We're surrounded by witnesses. Christians from the first century to the 21st century. This, all this witness, all these people who are in Jesus, they're witnessing. They're a great crowd. We're like in an amphitheater. We're like in a coliseum. We're surrounded by all these other believers. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. And let us run it with endurance. Here he goes again. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. How am I going to do that, Lord? How am I going to make it to the end? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Paul says at the end in 2 Thessalonians, May the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Lord, how is that possible? How am I going to be kept, spirit, soul, and body, blameless at the coming of Christ? This is how. He who calls you, not you, he who calls you is faithful. Not you faithful, he's faithful. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Is there any better good news than that? Let us pray. Lord Jesus the mystery of the new birth is great. Lord, we give you thanks that you have chosen and called those to be your children. And you've promised us that when we are in your hand, no one can take us out. 
and that you will lose no one who the Father has given to you. Therefore, let us, Father, have that confidence that you will bring us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.